Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. So we're nearing the, the end of our series on Acts. We've been exploring the first half of the book of Acts. We have one more week after this. And this morning we're looking at Saul's conversion, this famous story. Many of us have heard it, this blinding light on the road, and Paul is knocked off of his horse, and this dramatic interaction with Jesus. And we're left wondering, is that a template for, for all Christian conversion? Is that how it's always supposed to go? What if I became a Christian in the, in the quiet moments, you know, beside my bed? What if, what if you know, does that, does that count? Is that okay? Um, what if I have been converted in, in some sort of still and, and, and gradual way rather than this dramatic way like Paul? What if I'm not sure that I've been converted? How would I know? Or what if I just hate the word conversion and it makes me uncomfortable? Let's explore Christian conversion this morning. What is it is the first question. What, what causes it? And what are, what are its effects? So what is it? What causes it? What are its effects? So follow along. I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible or on your phone in Acts chapter 9. The story breaks down into three movements, really, really tidily. The first, we see the story of Saul with Saul. So uh, verses 1 through 3, it's Saul with Saul. And then we see second, Saul with Jesus. That's the second movement in verses 1 through 9. And then third, we see Saul with the church, who is Ananias in this case. Saul with the church in verses 10 through 31. So the, the story of the old life before life with Jesus, then there's the story of encountering Jesus, and then there's the story of the new story of, of following Jesus. That's the three movements to this, this story. If you're ever asked to share your testimony, this is a good outline for you. There's the old life before Jesus, there's the, the encounter with Jesus, and then there's new life as, as a result. So let's look at Saul with Saul, life before Jesus. We read about this in, in verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. He was doing what? He was breathing out murderous threats. can't quite get this to feel normal for me. He was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He searched those who belonged to the way, whether men or women, that he might take them prisoners to Jerusalem. So here's a young man, a Pharisee of, of immense learning, who was, for the church, less of a man and more of a predator. He was a beast. In fact, Luke uses words that communicate this much. The word for destroying the church in chapter 8, verse 3, is elsewhere used in Psalm 80, and it speaks of a wild boar devastating a vineyard, the vineyard of God's people in this case. So this word conjures up images of a body being ravaged by this wild beast. Some scholars suggest that the, the havoc that Paul was, was wreaking in verse 21, Paul is creating havoc in Jerusalem. This word could be translated as maul. Paul, this beast, was mauling the church, and he's breathing out murderous threats in verse 1, which is an allusion to this panting and snorting of a wild boar of a wild beast. So you get the picture. This Paul is... Um, one translation is described as insanely angry in chapter 26, verse 11, as Paul is telling his story again. He's insanely angry, and he's chasing down, he's hunting Christians, literally, to all these different cities, consumed with anger and vengeance. So you get the picture of Saul with Saul before meeting Jesus. Now, I grew up in a Christian home with, with um, basic Christian sensibility, you might say. So my life before Jesus was less externally extreme than Paul's, who was hunting Christians for sport. But there was still this, you know, there was gnawing shame in my life. 
There was a haunting loneliness, I think. There was a paralyzing insecurity, the deeply insecure. So just take stock. What was my life before Jesus, when I was on my own? The story of Saul before Jesus establishes um, these truths, which make his conversion story so remarkable. We're not reading of this um, imposter with an intent to deceive people. We're not reading of an enthusiast who's just getting carried away with infatuations of this new Christian community. We're not reading of a weak-minded, impressionable man who was deceived by the Christians. No, this is a story of a remarkably learned, a sharp, convicted, insanely determined man whose life has changed when he met the risen Jesus. And so we are going to define conversion this way. What is, con what is conversion? Conversion is a transformative reorientation of the heart or the soul based on a new relationship with Jesus. It's a, it's a holistic transformation of the heart and soul based on a new relationship with Jesus. That's what happens in Saul. Now notice what this definition doesn't say. It doesn't say conversion always happens like a 4th of July firework, as it did for Saul. Saul is only one portrait of conversion that we get in Acts. Think of other stories of conversion. For example, Lydia in Acts 16 14, Luke recounts a woman named Lydia who's a dealer in purple cloth. And he says, a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, listens to us. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. And after, she and her whole household were baptized. Now, imagine being a fly on the wall in the conversation between Paul and Lydia. So Paul says, um, so, so you say, Lydia, that the Lord simply opened your heart to the gospel. And Lydia says, yes. And Paul says, Okay, and then, and then a light shone from heaven, and God's voice thundered your name, and you were blinded for three days, right? And Lydia says, no light, no thunder, no blindness, just this deep resonance in my heart that Jesus is the Messiah. So Paul says, I'm sorry, that's not how conversion works. So um, come back when you've had the fireworks display, we'll talk, and we'll, we'll get you baptized. No, Paul, Paul approves of Lydia's baptism because he knew what was unique about his, about his conversion, what was not unique about it. What was unique about his conversion were the dramatic outward things that happened because Paul's call was exceptional, a call to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to be the inspiration for much of our New Testament, this dramatic conversion story. They're not all like that. In fact, most of them aren't. What was essential to the conversion was this inward experience of, of surrender and faith in Christ. Paul responds, Lord, who are you? It may come with a boom, with the fireworks, or it may come, it probably will come with a whisper. So that's what conversion is. It's this holistic reorientation of the heart around a new relationship with Jesus. And for many of us, it's, it's subtle. For some of us, it's exciting, like Paul. The second question is, what causes it? What causes Paul's conversion? It seems almost as if God acts entirely of his own initiative. And actually, he does. As, a, as an old seminary professor put it to me, he said that um, the arrows of salvation always point down. The arrows of salvation always point down. John Stott, whose commentary I'm using a lot in this sermon, puts it this way. Saul did not decide for Christ. Christ decided for Saul. Saul is busy persecuting the church. He's ravaging it. He's mauling it. He's traveling 150 miles from Jerusalem to the desert oasis of Damascus. And as he walks, he's angrily obsessing over destroying Christians, like, like a predator wants to destroy its prey. And then around noon, this light flashes around him and sends him to the ground, and he lies prostrate at the foot of his conqueror, and a voice thunders, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. When Saul opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hands to Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. So Paul had planned to go to Damascus to make Christ followers his captives, and he entered Damascus a captive to Christ. Was this his doing or God's doing? Elsewhere, Paul describes his conversion as something that happened to him. Think about it. He doesn't say in Philippians 3.12 that I accepted Christ, but rather that Christ took hold of me. He doesn't say in 1 Timothy 1.14, I just overflowed with love for God, but that the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. He doesn't say in Galatians 1.15 that I decided that Jesus was the Son of God, but that he who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his Son to me. You see, he's receiving He's receiving the sovereign grace of God. He didn't decide for Christ. Christ decided for him. In other words, Saul's conversion was due to the sovereign grace of God in Christ. Now, having said that, I want to qualify it in, in three ways. The sovereign grace that, that leads to conversion is not always uniform, it is not always sudden, and it is not entirely compulsive. So first, it's not always uniform. Now, I'm repeating myself here, but conversion isn't typically this dramatic and overwhelming experience. After all, think about why is Paul converted to preach to the Gentiles? And as we'll see with Ananias in just a second, God delights in using people to do what he could, in theory, do himself. So rather than give everyone a Damascus Road conversion, he gives it to Saul, who then plays a role in billions of conversions through his preaching. Throughout church history, most conversions, they're much more like Lydia's. People who encounter God's word through, through Saul, through his words, through the New Testament, through preaching, and whom cooperate with the Lord as he opens their heart to him. So not all conversions, not, the grace of God doesn't work in a uniform way with all of us. It's unique for many of us. Second, the sovereign grace of God isn't necessarily sudden like it was. In fact, we might argue that even for Saul it wasn't sudden. The breakthrough on Damascus was, was very sudden. But think about this. In Acts 26, Paul, Paul tells his story of conversion three times. And in Acts 26, when he's telling his story, he adds a new detail. Jesus says to him, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. What are the goats? Well, everyone in that day understood it. We don't. But the goats are basically they're a cattle prod. Goads were like slender sticks, pieces of timber with a blunt, blunt on one end and sharp on the other. And farmers would use it to point um, an oxen and urge a stubborn oxen to, to keep walking. And occasionally if the beast would kick against the goad, then the more the ox kicked, the more the goad kind of, you know, pierced its flesh and, and, and stung and, and hurt it. So it was a prod. So do you see the implication here? A goad was basically a cattle prod, which meant that Jesus had already been prodding Saul along. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul had been kicking against the goads for some time. We might propose a few of them. Here's one. Here's one goad. Maybe one good was Paul's own doubts. It's possible that Paul had actually met Jesus face to face. Some believe he did, some believe he didn't. But he certainly had heard of Jesus' teachings. And more than that, he had heard of Jesus' many miracles. And he had heard that Jesus was resurrected. And so you got to wonder, was Paul turning these things over in his mind and doubting to some degree? The second good was Stephen. We just looked at Stephen last week. Stephen, who was... Uh, Saul was, was, was standing by and watching Stephen martyred, was he not? Approving of the stoning. And what do we read? Stephen's face was shining with peace and joy as he prayed for the forgiveness of his killers. 
Would that have not made an impression on Saul? The very fanaticism of Saul's persecution betrayed his own growing inner uneasiness. Because fanaticism is only found, writes Carl Jung, in individuals who are compensating for secret doubts. Fanaticism is often found in those who are compensating for secret doubts. Third, there was the goad of his own conscience. Romans 7 says, we, Paul looks back on his life before Christ and he admits that for all the talk of perfection, being a perfect Pharisee, he had doubts about his own perfection, especially his inability to keep the 10th commandment, do not covet. He said, I recognized I was covetous for power, for control. And so we have the own kind of gnawing conscience of Saul that could have been a goad for him. And so, yes, the breakthrough in Damascus, this moment was sudden. But he had been kicking against the goads for some time. He had been hearing the word of God. He had been seeing the word of God in action through Stephen. He had been feeling the restless ache of his own neediness within him. Jesus had been pursuing him. And third, there's the sovereign grace of God. Yes, but it isn't entirely compulsive. It isn't uniform. It isn't uniform. It isn't necessarily um, sudden. And it isn't compulsive. Now, if I tried to give an easy answer for the question of how God's sovereign initiating grace and our free response work together in salvation, I would be fired. At least I should be, because there isn't one. There isn't an easy explanation for this. But we do see in Saul's account that despite this, this overwhelming encounter, Saul remained entirely free, didn't he? He was not compelled against his will. Jesus actually probes his heart with a question. Why do you persecute me? He appeals to Saul's reason and to Saul's conscience. This didn't render Saul incapable of a free response. He asked two questions. Paul says, who are you? And then his account in chapter 22, what should I do, Lord? He's freely responding. So the divine grace, it didn't render Saul a, a robot. It didn't trample his personality. It, it did trample his pride. It confronted his sin, but it liberated him to respond as we are all invited to. What should I do, Lord? What should I do now that you've revealed yourself to me? C.S. Lewis once described this, um, this freedom, this freedom of our response to God's grace this way. C.S. Lewis was an atheist, and he began exploring whether or not the Christian claims were true, and Jesus really was the Messiah, and he describes his decision this way. He says, I became aware, I became aware that I was holding something at bay, shutting something out, as if I were wearing stiff clothes, like a corset, or a suit of armor, as if I were a lobster, he says. <laughs> I felt myself being given a free choice. I could unbuckle the armor, or I could keep it on. I chose, finally, to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the reins. And that's this conversion story. You and I are called to make a choice in response to God's free, freely offered grace. God's desire and invitation is that none should perish, all should come to repentance, that all would be converted, that each of you and everyone you know would have a transformative reorientation of the heart based on the new relationship with Jesus, and yet, like Paul, we all kick against the goads, don't we? Even those of you who already know and love Jesus, we continue to kick against the goads. Uh, you know, love your enemy. Give generously. Pursue purity. We, we wrestle through these things. But the Lord is pursuing us ceaselessly with his grace. So Paul's words and acts are, are a gentle push, a gentle prod, you might say, to follow him. This sermon is a gentle push to follow him but also to look within your heart. If not insane anger, like Paul's, and, and, and being a predator of Christians, is there shame? Is there insecurity? Is there haunting loneliness? Is there a sense that you are locked in armor, guarding yourself against the advances of Jesus? Surrender to the love of Christ. Let him decide for you, as Paul did. Ask God to open your heart, as he did Lydia's. 
Now, if you do, what will happen? Let's finish by very briefly looking at the effects of conversion. What happens to those who are converted? Paul was persecuting the church, yes? But Jesus asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, those who are converted are, in some mysterious sense, Christ's own body. This theological principle is then seen in action in the third movement of the story, the story of Saul's conversion, which is his interaction with Ananias in verses 10 through 25. So we had Saul with Saul, so we had Saul with Jesus, and now we have Saul with Ananias. And this is the new story of Saul and the church. I want to point out two things. Paul demonstrates a new relationship with God. That's what happens in conversion. What is he doing when Ananias finds him? He's praying. The story begins with him breathing out murderous threats, and here at the end finds him probably on his knees at the end of a three-day fast, breathing out prayers to God. Well, okay, conversion means a new relationship with God. But look, second, Paul demonstrates a new relationship with the church. Could Jesus not have cured Saul as Saul had been praying alone? Of course he could. He could have taken the scales off his eyes. Could Jesus have filled Saul with the Holy Spirit when he first met him on the Damascus Road? Of course he could. But here's what we might call the Ananias principle. God delights in acting through his body, through people, through the church. He just delights in it. He loves it. That's how he works most often. So the Lord sends Ananias to lay his hands on Saul, which cures his blindness and fills him with the Holy Spirit. Ananias, think about him. He courageously obeys the Lord's command to go and find this predator of the church, rightfully terrified of Saul, but the Lord asks him to go. And what are the first words Ananias speaks to this enemy? Brother. Brother Saul. Words of fraternal welcome into a fraternity, into a body. So this fanatic was now family. And through welcome into the church, look what happens to Saul. His sight is restored. He's immediately baptized, and then he is fed. You see the sacraments here. And God has asked his body to be Ananias for the Sauls of this world to this day. He delights in using you and I to heal people, physically and spiritually, to restore people in their relationship with God, to bring them into his body through baptism and a fraternal welcome, to feed them and nourish them, to invite them to the Lord's table. But where does all this leave us? Think about it. If Saul was not beyond the sovereign grace of God, then neither are you. Think about who Saul was before Christ. If Saul was not beyond the sovereign grace of God, then neither of you. His grace is lavish and ready to meet you on whatever road you are walking, even if it's away from him or against him. And neither are your agnostic or your atheists, friends and family and neighbors. Pray for them. I'm sure the early church was praying for Saul. They had heard of his reputation of this great persecutor of the church. Of course they were praying for him. So pray for your friends and neighbors and family who might be hostile to you or to the things of God, that God would, that God would go them a little bit, and that they would not kick against the jokes. Father, I pray that you would encourage us all, wherever we are in our relationship with you, curious about you, hostile towards you, wide open to you. I pray that you would just encourage us into that next step, into deeper relationship with you, into deeper transformation, because we know that encountering you always means a transformed life, and it also means a deeper relationship with your church this fraternity through which you love to work. Thank you for this church, Father, for these brothers and sisters here who are Ananias' to Saul's around them. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name.
Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.